When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. The dream is made real. Ricky Hatton rocks the world. How do you like it? How do you like it? I wish I was 50 years younger and I'd kick your ass. It's over. Mamma mia. He's done it. Anthony Joshua defeats Vladimir Klitschko. Uh. Welcome once again, fight fans, to another episode of Career Profiles in association with BTR Boxing Podcast. This episode has been selected by one of our listeners and one of the users on Twitter, Seamus Laverty27. Thank you so much for giving us this suggestion for the next career profile. Today, we're doing the career of one of the greatest middleweights, super middleweights, and fighters that moved up so many different weights and won titles that he's regarded as one of the greatest fighters that have ever lived. Of course, we're talking about none other than Roy Jones Jr. Before we get into the career profile of Roy Jones Jr., of course, we want you to go and check us out on social media. You can do that by checking us out on Twitter at career underscore profiles. And if you've not already checked out the Facebook page, you can do so. It's BTR Boxing Podcast on Facebook. Now, if you've not already subscribed to the Career Profiles podcast, please go and check us out on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave us a rating and a review. It really, really helps us. So without further ado, this is the career profile of one of the greatest pound-for-pound fighters. This is Roy Jones Jr. So, the career of one of the greatest pound-for-pound fighters of all time. It's Roy Jones Jr. Johnston, a guy that I've really enjoyed watching over the years. I wasn't so happy about watching the latter end of his career, as we'll discuss throughout this episode. But during his prime, he was just one of the greatest fighters that has ever lived and a lot of people's top pound-for-pound fighter of all time. Oh, I couldn't. I, I have to agree with you, mate. He, he really was. He was sublime, wasn't he? And, and just watching him, being around and being able to watch uh, Roy Jones, has been, been a pleasure. But 
as you say, obviously, the latter end of the career sort of fizzled out. But, I mean, some of the things, just the things you'd never seen from a fighter do before, he was doing. I mean, those fast hands and that really unorthodox style of it, it's just a pleasure to watch him. And quite simply, it's, it's a great career profile to, to be running through, and it's been fantastic looking through. Before it sort of he, he actually stepped in and embarked into the program. We've got some great stories, and, and we just hope hopefully the listeners enjoy it. So we're going to start as always. At the beginning, on January the 16th, 1969, Roy Jones Jr., as we know him, was born Roy Levester Jones Jr. And he was born in Pensacola, Florida. And he has three sisters, Tiffany, Catandria and Lakeisha, and also a brother named Corey as well. He was born in Pensacola, which is the westernmost city in Florida, Panhandle, and is also known as America's First Settlement. Now, the Jones family were located deep in the cornfields, about 25 miles north of Pensacola, by a washed-out creek bed in the woods behind the little block house on Bath Road. And within that grounds of that property, they actually had their own homemade farm ring, which, you're looking at in America, there's a lot of big open spaces in America where they're able to do that. And the Jones family actually had their own farm. They kept pigs, they kept dogs, roosters, goats, a bull, and a pony named Coco. <laughs> I love the fact that we found the name. <laughs> the pony called Coco. So, yeah, Roy, Roy Jones Jr. was obviously named after his father, which was Roy Jones Sr., who was a Vietnam War vet, who was actually awarded the Bronze Star for his bravery after he rescued an ambush mate for a blanket of bullets. So he obviously had, you know, a bit of a difficult time. We all know about Vietnam War. A horrible, horrible time for some of those guys. And following his service in the Vietnam War, he'd become a professional boxer at middleweight from 1975 to 1978. So it was very brief. But he did finish his career with a record of 13 wins, six losses and one draw with five knockouts. Now, his most notable bout came against a certain marvellous Marvin Hagler actually have done a career profile on. And we do mention the fact that he fights Jones Sr. on June 10th in 1977. And he's actually stopped in three rounds of a scheduled 10. So after his boxing career, he became an aircraft electrician in Pensacola Naval Air Station. Now, the city has been referred to as the cradle of naval aviation. So he was a lot of airline pilots were trained out there and he was basically a part of the electrician side of things. So Big Roy said, uh, in his own words, before I knew it, I began tutoring Junior at the age of five. A year later, he gave Junior a shotgun as a Christmas <laughs> present. To his, uh, his mother's dismay, she thought, well, she actually said, I thought I'd pass out when I saw that. And uh, <laughs> Junior was actually driving a tractor by the age of seven. Wow, that's absolutely crazy. <laughs> so when you go to America, and I know we we hear a lot of stories about what happens in America, and us, us obviously being from the UK, we get to hear all these different stories. Now, this is a crazy one. So, you know, normally here in the UK, you give some great presents to people, you know, for birthdays <laughs> and Christmas. So in America, it sounds like they like to give shotguns as Christmas presents. <laughs> it's a pretty crazy story, to be honest with you. And... The fact that he was driving a tractor by the age of seven, well, family, family business, of course. It was obviously everyone having to chip in while they was on the farm there. So going back to Roy Jones Sr., he was actually an active boxer, as we discussed earlier. So because of that, he wanted to get his son involved in boxing. So he started to train Roy Jones Jr. And it's quite easy to make the assumption about Sr. that his experiences in life obviously during the war, made him a strict disciplinarian. He believed 
in tough love and was highly critical of Junior from a very young age. So much so that he would, when he would chastise him, he would chastise him quite brutally. He would use a belt, an extension cord, or even a PVC pipe on Roy Jones Jr. whilst he was taunting him during the training sessions. His younger brother, Corey, once said, the whipping didn't last that long, maybe 20 minutes. Jesus Christ, it's, it's incredible, isn't it? I mean, what on earth? I couldn't even imagine. Oh, I got my, I got a boy myself, and that's definitely not the way I would discipline him. So I suppose, you know, he, it's a tricky one, really. I mean, borderline abuse, really. Uh, anyway, <laughs> moving on. Jones Jr. was always thrown in the deep end by his father. You know, as, as we mentioned, you know, he would taunt him and, and, and whip him. So he would actually stick him on the horse uh, or the pony called Coco or a bull. And he would literally just say, ride him. You know, there, there is a, that's just how he was. You know, he's just throw him in the deep end and let see how he gets on. And even the story of Big Roy forcing Junior to swim by sticking him two feet over his head in water, which was in, I think it was the Mexican River or something like the Mexican. I, I can't quite exactly remember. By this point, you know, Junior was only, he's under 10 years old. His father always had the attitude. His attitude was, you'll never do nothing if you're scared. And basically later in life, Jones Jr. did tell Sports Illustrated, I spent all my life in my dad's cage. I could never be 100% of who, who I am until I left it. But because of him, nothing bothers me. I never face anything stronger or harder than what I already have. When I was a kid, I had a, I had a desire to fight and I couldn't understand what it was. And I used to fight, I used to want to fight, but I wouldn't fight just for the fun of it. What I would do was, even in elementary school, if I saw a bigger kid picking on a smaller kid, that was my chance. So when I used to go around the school, I was the police. If I catch you picking on somebody, we gonna fight, because that's what I've been waiting on anyway. I just like the competition, because the whole while I would fight, I would be laughing. I never get mad at people, I just fought because I wanted to fight, to see how good I could be. Well, I'm already getting five, six minutes into this episode, and I'm already making my judgment that Roy Jones Sr., what an absolute cocksucker he is. To absolutely oh treat his family that way, to treat Roy Jones Jr. that way. I never knew Roy Jones Jr. was physically and mentally abused in this way, so to hear the stories of what his father was like is absolutely unbelievable in the sense that you just can't actually believe someone would treat their own flesh and blood in that way. So we're already six, seven minutes into the episode, and straight away you think... Roy Jones Senior prick. Simple as that. <laughs> so we move we move on in this yeah. story then for for Roy Jones Junior. So Roy's mother Carol would be there to comfort him at times of desperation and fear. But he had this mental desire to push himself through whatever his dad actually threw at him. And when they would fight, Senior on his knees, Junior would be swinging for the stars. He would lose some, but sometimes his dad would let him win. On the occasions he lost, he'd go to school and think of the only ways to defeat his dad when he got home later that evening. And Junior's dad also had a hard upbringing. So it's a bit of a vicious circle, isn't it, really? You look at, obviously, Roy Jones Jr.'s upbringing, and then we're now going to talk about Roy Jones Sr.'s upbringing, who also had a difficult upbringing. And he came from a family of 13. He worked long hours to provide for his family. He paid for all the boxing equipment and did many good things within the community like running the Escambia County Boys Club boxing programme in an abandoned building, rigging wires to the power lines outside to pirate electricity, and driving everyone to the H&O's CAF a few blocks away when the boys needed water and a toilet break. And amongst all this, Jones Jr. was always at the centre of everything his father did. 
but Junior wasn't too sure sometimes, saying he seemed closer to the other kids than he was to me. So my dad started teaching me to fight. That's what it was. But I really thought from watching Muhammad Ali, Joe Frazier, that I could outthink people. And boxing was more mental than physical. A lot of guys got in boxing because they thought, they thought it made you tough or it was a mean. It wasn't that for me. For me, I thought that if you use your mind, I'll think the next guy you can beat him. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a funny one because he seems, when you sort of read the stories about the community and the neighbours, a lot of them speak very highly of Big Roy, which was how they addressed him, Big Roy and Little Roy. And, but it's funny because when you hear these stories, how he treated sort of Jones Jr., it's, it's remarkable because, you know, nowadays Big Roy's treatment uh, of Little Roy basically would be considered a hand out abuse. I mean, there's no way about it. Um, and, it and he terrified Jones Jr. I mean, it, it terrified him to the extent that there was a quote that was found off. I believe this was Sports Illustrated as well. And he said, after a while, I didn't care about getting hurt or dying anymore. I was in pain every day. I was so scared of my, my father. He'd pull up in his truck and start looking for something I'd done wrong. There was no escape, no excuse, no way, no way out or nothing. Every day it was the same. School, homework, farm work, training. Getting hurt or dying might have even been better than the life I was living. So you can, I mean, that's it's incredible to be turned around and say things like this. And so he said he turned into a daredevil. I'd do anything. Didn't make much difference. Used to think about killing myself anyway. So it just shows you that no matter what we we see of Jones Jr. now, we know when we move on into his career. His dad was quite simply a horrible monster and, a, and a, just, just a nasty piece of work, let's be honest. I mean, you don't treat your own flesh and blood that way. Although he seemed to be treating the community a lot better than his son. Yeah, it's crazy, isn't it? You do hear a lot of abusive stories like this from, from different scenarios. But again, just to put it into perspective, I never knew he had such a bad upbringing like this, Roy. I honestly never knew it. I've always known Roy Jones Jr. for his boxing career looking deeper into it for, for the Career Profiles episode here and it's it's difficult to sort of stomach because we've both got kids ourselves and you can't even imagine, you know, the sort of abuse he suffered as a child and to think how innocent children are, it's unbelievable how he got away with it for so long. So Big Roy, like we're saying, he's just a monster. But this was his philosophy, a relentless desire to turn his son into a world champion. He said... Some of the methods and techniques that I use to train him is not just something that needs to be viewed by the general public because they would just not understand. It was tough, it was lonely, and it was frightening for Jones Jr. But he still, after all of this, had this admiration and love for his father. And he said, My father was hard on me, but I guess he knew that I was going to have to be moulded to take whatever came at me once I became an adult. His father was also described by Roy Jones Jr. as... The best coach. Absolutely <laughs> mental. It's crazy. Honestly, I can't it, get over it. It really is. I oh, know. I mean, they, they do say that with, with abusers. You know, when you're, although you get abused by these people, you still have this undying love for them. It's, it's a strange thing. I mean, we, I, I would never understand it. I don't think you will, Phil, because we've never been in that position. But, you know, you hear these stories. And, and I think that's probably what Jones Jr. felt. I think as an adult, he probably would never do that with his own sons. And obviously, he would become a better father from it. But, Oh, it's, it's, it's so dreadful, isn't it? So boxing wasn't the father and son's only love. Now, this is a lot of people said that senior, he he, he loved his, his uh, cop fighting. He was obsessed with it. And he used to be a different person. Even his friends used to say that he was always happy and quite fun to be around. Whereas, his, you know, his son found a love for it as well, Jones Jr. And they did keep roosters on the farm and they would enter those into local contests. 
sometimes Junior would watch in horror as his much-loved and favourite rooster would fight to the death. I mean, he used to have a, a fascination. He still did all the way up to this point today. So there was one incident in particular that involved one of his favourite roosters called Crazy. During the battle, a three-inch steel spear got embedded through its skull. Everybody thought he was dying, but somehow Little Roy managed to get the blade loose from the head. After a bit of tender loving care where he was sort of stroking it and calming it down, he sent the rooster back into action and it won. And one thing that Roy Jones Jr. says that obviously he obviously couldn't believe it. He was jumping around, he was celebrating and everyone's disbelief crazy was still alive. So he, he's, he's rooster won the fight and, and that was one thing that he always relates to. It was moments like these that Roy Jones Jr. used to always compare himself to, compare his, his relationship with boxing. And he actually said that that's why I used to relate to the Kujan chickens because you can use them. You can relate to what that's like because every time they fight, they could die. It doesn't mean they would, but they could. So that was, that was his philosophy. That was his idea behind it. He used to look at the roosters and he would almost try and mimic the way. He, used to, he actually used it as a way of him fighting in the ring and, and when you actually look at the way Jones Jr. fights, and I mean, I'm not, I'm not into cop fighting, but they're not really got their arms, so they don't use their jab. Pretty similar, they use this upper body movement, and, and that's, that's just one thing, he, he just loved it. I mean, I think it's illegal now, it wasn't back then. Yeah, so, so that was Jones Jr.'s theory behind it, or he, he adored him, and it was something that he took from his father. So by the time Roy Jones Jr. was 10 years old, he was sparring and fighting bigger, taller, older and even heavier kids. Sometimes he was even forced to fight with one hand time behind his back as well. And his dad, Roy John Senior, actually confirmed this story by saying, I used to take one hand from him. I used to make him spar guys one-handed. When his jab got weak, I took his best hand away from him so he couldn't do anything but use his jab. Now by the time Jones Jr. was ready to compete, he was brilliant in the ring and he destroyed his competition in local and regional fights, winning a gold medal in the 1984 Junior Olympics and the Golden Gloves titles two years running in 1986 and 1987. He was kind of a celebrity and a role model now in Pensacola. He'd become a mentor as well to some of the aspiring local boxers, such as Derek Smoke Gainer. He always came and got me. He sat me down and said, you have to do this or you're going to be in jail or you're going to end up dead. Yeah, it's crazy that he's, Jones Jr. is actually now passing on the wisdom and, you know, he was he, clearly, no matter how we've seen us, Jones's ideologies and how you train to make a world champion, I mean, it's just certainly not the way any normal person would do today, but it did have an effect. You know, he was um, a, a magnificent amateur and, and the fact that he's turned around to a guy like Derek Smoke Gaynor, who was his long-term friend and friend throughout his whole career, so much so they went shooting and fishing together, and they've always been close. And, and he, he was giving passes on wisdom like that. I mean, it's, it's great for such a young kid to be doing that. And he, he looked up to him, Derek Smoke Gaynor. So the next step would be the biggest prize in amateur boxing, which was in the Olympics in 1988, and Jones Jr., was on a mission. His coach for the games was an Alton Merkinson who used to call uh, Coach Merk. I think that was his was his phrase. How he used to he used to always call him. And he actually said he was always so decisive. He knew what he wanted to do and how he was going to get there. All he was concentrating on was winning a gold medal. So this is where we got to the 1988 Olympics in Seoul. 
Now, he was competing in the 156-pound weight class. Rogers Jr. at this point, he's just 19 years of age and the youngest member of the US Olympic boxing team, which also consisted of some future stars like flyweight Michael Carbajal, Kennedy McKinney at bantamweight and Ray Mercer at heavyweight and super heavyweight, the infamous Riddick Bowe. So, from the last 16 to the final... Roy Jones Jr. didn't lose a single round. He knocked out Mintende Makalamba of Malwe in one round before whitewashing the Czechoslovakian Michael Franek and the Kazakhstanian, if I'm going to try and pronounce this one right, Evgeny <laughs> Zatzev, who was also representing the Soviet Union at the time. So, in the semi-finals, Roy outclassed and broke the nose of a certain British fighter by the name of Richie Woodall in another 5-0 points victory, which was described by Ferdi Pacheo as, when Jones Jr. picks up the action, he starts to look like Sugar Ray Leonard. His hands are down, he's taunting, he is offering his face, and then dancing away as Woodall tries to punch. Jones was, was an exception, I think, in, in the whole of the tournament. I mean, he, he won the best box of the, uh, of the tournament trophy. Um, very, very quick, very deceiving, long arms, when, you thought he was, when I thought I was out of range. He, um, the jab was always there, beating me to the punch, and I was a lot taller than him. He was very, very quick, and as I say, very deceiving. Now, in the final, Jones Jr. fought another local hero, South Korean fighter Park Si Huna. He was dishing out a beating, and just like he'd done throughout the whole competition, he was countering and landing hooks and making Park miss and, and look a little bit silly as well. He was quite simply in the zone at this point. He'd gone through... The preliminaries, he got all the way to the final. He's, he's absolutely outclassing Park C. Huna. And when the final bell sounded at that particular bout, everybody watching at home, his trainer Alton, his dad in the crowd, and the NBC commentator Marv Albert all assumed it was just going to be another gold medal for the USA. But unfortunately, the result was one of the biggest and worst decisions and farcical decisions in amateur boxing because he lost a hugely controversial decision by three rounds to two and this was despite just watching a guy like Roy Jones Jr. at 19 years of age absolutely outsmart and outclass his opponent over the course of the full three rounds. Well, he's dropping his arms now, he's, a, he's, he's flashy but he can fight good left hooks, he's catching the Korean coming straight at him square on and that caught the head guard, not the fuck oh. and he's going to give him a standing count, just listen to the boos now I knew that would happen while the Korean's trying to make up his mind as if will you stand still while I hit you Jones is saying no I'll do plenty of that with speed of punch well winning it, beautiful stuff this, oh yes so accurate he's hardly missed him with those and he looks like he's going to be one to watch when he punches for players he most certainly will i would think and what a showcase this is for him around the world the signs down here among this jury there's a, there's one or two smiling people and the hands have gone up i think they've given this to the korean hold hold your seats fellas i may have to vote for the back door if that if i'm misreading that and they they sort of Pushing security people on. I don't believe this. I hope not. I hope we've misunderstood it. Ladies and gentlemen, the winner is three two. He's won it, the Korean. Oh, I don't believe that. That has got to be the worst decision I have ever seen in pro or amateur. Unbelievable. Well, as I say, often somebody would say to me, "What's the worst verdict you've ever seen?" And now I can truthfully say I've just seen it. <laughs> I mean, uh, you can see pretty much the whole fight 
is as it's only three rounds and it's clear to see Jones Jr. is absolutely demolished Park. He never had no chance at all. And I mean, even the, the punch statistics, he landed 86 punches to Park's 32. Just before the scores were announced, even the Indian referee was Aldo Leone. He actually mumbled to Jones, I can't believe they're going to do this to you. And that, that's that's what Jones Jr. said he heard. And, and Jones even said like he could see there was a bit of commotion. He couldn't quite understand because everyone was just expecting it to be a clear, clear cut victory yeah and as as I said Jones is just going to pick up another goal for the USA now even Park was baffled by the decision Roy actually asked the translator to ask Park if he felt he won and he basically said no <laughs> nothing more to say really no I didn't the whole thing was a sham but commentator Marv Albert came out with a classic line he said this is the greatest robbery I have seen since the great train robbery <laughs> many still feel that this is the worst decision in the history of amateur boxing and uh, I can't honestly the only other one I could think of was Floyd Mayweather Jr. where he had a similar situation but this is worse this is probably the worst decision in amateur boxing I've ever seen God walks in mysterious ways when I was robbed I felt like I was just going to stop boxing I got back to Pensacola and saw the little kids that were on my boxing team and it looks in their eyes like you don't give up you giving up I could just see they had to say it. I could see it in their eyes. I was like, dang it, man. And then I started thinking, too, how can I, of all people, go around doing speeches telling kids that when times get hard, you don't give in to those hard times. You go harder than you ever went before. If I'm going to give up because I got robbed. So I lost that vote. <laughs> and But I did say to myself right then, you know what, when I come back, I want to prove to them not only that I was the best at the Olympics because they gave me the Val Barker Cup for most outstanding boxer at the Olympics. Yeah. So now I got to prove to y'all not only was I the best at the Olympics, but I'm the best on the planet. So that definitely fueled my fire. After this, an official IOC investigation, which ended in 1997, found that although the offending judges had been wined and dined by South Korea organisers, there was no actual evidence of corruption in the boxing events in Seoul. Interestingly, two of the judges were banned for life and the incident led the Olympic organisers to establish a new scoring system for Olympic boxing, which has done nothing to change the corruption and amateur boxing still to this day. I mean, the most recent one is obviously Michael Conlon in the 2016 Olympics, so it just goes to show you that it is obviously still rife what goes on in the amateur side of the sport. But for Jones Jr., this was the culmination of all them years' work that came crashing down as far as he was concerned. He was brought to tears over the decision. You can see him leaving the ring absolutely devastated, using a towel to cover up his face and he even considered giving up the sport altogether and imagine that what a travesty that would have been if he would have given up the sport at that point so he was later awarded the Val Barker trophy as the best stylistic boxer of the 1988 games which was only the third and to this day the last time in the competition's history when this award did not go to one of the gold medal winners the reason for this is that the trophy is being awarded by the AIBA, an organisation not directly connected with the Olympic authorities. So he was independently voted. For, for, for once, we actually see a bit of sanity prevail. So he was actually awarded that and, and no one else has ever been awarded it since. Now, even though 50 Korean monks personally expressed their shame for what their country did to him, a silver medal around his neck and the Val Barker trophy in hand, he still failed second by the decision. And in a rare moment of genuine affection and tenderness between father and son, Roy Jones Sr. consoled Junior by telling him, you've got more heart than 90% of people you will ever see in your life, so don't worry about it. 
Well, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? The one time that he actually gets something back from his father is the, the point where he feels devastated by it all. So, I mean, that is a nice touch, I suppose. I mean, that's the one good thing about their relationship, I suppose. To further lift Jones Jr.'s spirit, he arrived over Pensacola to a hero's welcome. I mean, there is a documentary that you can watch on, on YouTube and he literally paraded at the airport and not winning the gold medal made him made him actually probably more famous than if he actually did win it and he was actually more loved not only by the Pentacolians, it was also just by the nation as a whole and uh, it was big news and he was given gold medals everywhere he went. It did help him make the decision that actually, as you mentioned earlier, Sean, is that he did contemplate giving up the fight game altogether and he decided, after reflecting on it, the whole situation, he decided, I'm going to stick it out. And, and one of the quotes he said is, if I quit, how the hell am I ever going to get up and tell them, if you get knocked down in life, get back up and keep going and you will be stronger. Basically, he can't do that. He's saying that if I, if I did quit, you can't say that to somebody, you know, when you're knocked down and you don't get up. So from that point, whether I wanted to or not, I'm going to keep fighting. And, and, and that was a, you know, it just shows you, yeah, was he 19 years old, the youngest to go. I mean, you see that USA team was magnificent. I mean, what, what a fantastic team that was. And, and he came back as the major attraction. Obviously it was, he did come back with a gold medal, but he was adored by the nation and, and people were, looking at what's he going to be doing now is he going to be transferring over and that's exactly what he did so we move on now and we move on to his professional career six months after the disappointment of the olympics in seoul in 1989 he decides to turn professional and of course he was soon flooded with management offers from the biggest names in the sport like leonard and his lawyer that's sugar ray leonard and his lawyer mike trainer butch lewis lou duver from main events emmanuel steward bob arum and our good old friend, Mr. Don King. <laughs> the options were limitless. Before he originally decided to sign with Stewart, a contract which was worth $300,000 with a car, a house, and a horse. 60000 for his dad, Roy Senior, and 25000 trust fund for educating Roy's siblings. So it sounds like a pretty good deal, that. And then he goes, to, and then he goes to his mother for advice. And his mother, Carol, says, Your father got you this far. Give him a chance. So he decides that, yeah, you know what? After all the shit he's been through with his dad, he's going to give the guy a chance. He couldn't say no. So he decides to keep the business in the family. And Roy Senior becomes his coach, his trainer, his manager, and his promoter. And they formed Squaring Inc. And used the local attorneys, Fred and Stanley Levine, to assist with the matchmaking, the fight venues, the ticket sales, and the negotiating. But, of course, Big Roy would always have the final say in everything. Yeah, that sounded like an amazing deal. Emmanuel Stewart, eh? Oh, I mean, he could have taught him a few things. I believe than Big Roy could have. Obviously, I'm talking Big Roy, obviously, he turned his son into a magnificent fighter, albeit in very unusual circumstances and one I would definitely not recommend. But he decided to stick with his... He listened to his mum, the one person he, he did felt... He felt protection from his mum. And uh, it would actually prove to be a poison chalice from the start. And in a matter of time, Junior would want to move in a different direction. Jones Junior said about his strained relationship with his father. At first, I think he thought I was trying to take his identity or trade places with him. But I wasn't trying to trade places. I just wanted to be my own man. A lot of the time, fathers forget that. And so it all started well, you know, as it does. It all started very well for Roy Jones, making his professional debut on May 6th 
1989 in front of his hometown in the Civic Centre in Pensacola, which will become his adored venue. He absolutely loved it there. And against a guy called Ricky Randall, who he knocked down twice in the first round before it was stopped in the second. And Jones earned himself a little $50,000 for the fight. Not bad, that is it really, for your first professional yeah, fight, your $50,000. Not to be sniffed at whatsoever, that. So a month later, he has his second pro fight, and the broadcast was actually on NBC. And they played the cheated Olympian story over and over again. A great way to promote a fighter by putting his worst moment on the telly constantly <laughs> and using that as the selling point. For Jones Jr., of course, he finished the fight by an eight-round stoppage against Stephen Johnson at the Trump Plaza Hotel in Atlantic City. Back at the Civic Centre in September 89 and once again live on NBC, he picked up his third stoppage against Ron Amundsen. Jones Jr. was being labelled as the next Sugar Ray Leonard at this point. So it was from his fourth professional fight, a third-round knockout of David McCluskey in November of 89, up until his 15th knockout in as many fights against Lester Yarborough, that Roy Jones Jr.'s career was beginning to become scrutinised, not only from the outside, but from the inside as well. Yeah, he was he was fighting in front of crowds of no more than two and a half thousand people against less than average opponents that basically were not acceptable for a talent of of, of Roy Jones Jr. I mean, we've we've spoke about Sugar Ray Leonard before previously, Sean. We've, you know, we've seen how he was promoted and directed, which is probably the right way. Whereas Roy Jones Jr. he probably should have been, and um, even an, an ABC boxing uh, commentator called Alex Walu, she said that Roy had become an invisible fighter and, and his dad just basically hadn't promoted him well enough. He just didn't. He wasn't. He was, he was very stubborn and he weren't going to listen to anybody. And, and Big Roy was not interested and basically would not budge on his method. Uh, and he just wanted to take things slowly. And, and the one thing, he, the quote he, he was actually quoted as saying is, boys don't win world championships. Men do. He's not ready. You don't give a kid $2 million and the prestige of a world title. Otherwise, you end up with a Mike Tyson. If I'm going to be black-labeled for looking after my son, well, then go ahead. Call me Tar Baby. Which is <laughs> it's interesting because he had this... So, he had this you know, the way he would just throw his son at a young age, five years old, you know, just chuck him in the, in the, in the sea, you know, in a river. Swim, you know, I mean, chuck him on a horse, ride it. And yet he was so reluctant to push his son when he became a professional fighter. It, it didn't make no sense to me. I don't really know what that was about. It really did confuse me. So, yeah, it really confused me. And, and I don't understand why he's, he basically delayed his career to the point where, as we mentioned, that, uh, the other guys in that USA team, I think by that point, all of them had world titles. So it just shows you, I think he was he, he, he should have been pushed faster. Muhammad Ali was my first, and Sugar Ray Robinson. The list goes on and on. I looked up to all those guys. But what I did was, I often found or looked for which quality in those group of fighters that I, met, that I just mentioned, which qualities made which one stand out the most. And I put it all into one Roy Jones Jr. So, attorney Fred Levine was aware that things needed to change and fast. And he said, I thought we should have moved much more faster. We spent two to three years fighting bums in Pensacola fairgrounds and losing our own butt just putting on shows. So even the attorney, even the attorney at this point is recognizing that they're not really fighting guys that are actually going to make us any money here. We need to do something about it. And obviously Roy was desperate to get the big fight, and he felt smothered by his father's stubbornness. And this is always going to play out in the father-son relationship when it comes into boxing. 
But his father, as always, just ignored him. He ignored the growing tension within the camp. And he just continued with his plan of moving Roy Jones Jr. along slowly. And during this time, Fred Levin was approached by other promoters and managers trying to arrange a world title shot for Roy. I can remember getting a call offering Roy a championship fight about two or three years into his career. I called his father and he said no. He said Roy doesn't need it and want it. I didn't know that years later, he didn't even mention that to Roy. My goodness, he's just, he's just taking control of his life, isn't he? I mean, he's already done that. And and obviously, Jones, he, he, he's getting to the point now where eventually the bubble's going to burst. And, and with tensions rising in 1992, Roy Senior did manage to get a fight, eventually a genuine opponent in former worldweight champion Jorge Vasa, who was a 48-9-1 and on January 10th at the Paramount Theatre in New York, with main events promoting the fight in front of a crowd of 3,000, so a little bit more, an extra 500. Jones landed fast and well-timed left hook that ended it in the first round. And obviously, you know, that is one punch you'll see often with Jones doing that sort of leaping left hook that he threw was just devastating, one of the best punches ever seen in the game. And following another straightforward first-round victory in April to make it 16 wins and 16 knockouts, Jones Jr. finally went the distance for the first time in his career against future world champion Jorge Castro, winning a 10-round decision in front of the USA Network national audience in June. So relations between senior and junior were already strained, but then came an incident that broke the camel's back. So Roy Jones had his own Rottweiler that he absolutely loved and adored. And what happened was he actually went and bit Roy Jones Jr.'s little sister on the arm, which resulted in senior deciding to take actions of his own. We know how much of a bit of a bastard he can be at times, but this next incident just really, really completely shattered the relationship these two guys had. And it wasn't really much of it, as you've heard throughout the episode so far. So as a result of that dog biting his little sister on the arm, he decides to go to his shed or wherever it was he got the weapon from, gets a shotgun and unloads three cartridges into its head. He also unloads one from a Glock 9mm pistol, obviously instantly killing the dog. Now, it's controversial, really, because obviously a dog's just bitten his daughter, so his reaction was to go and kill it. But what the story doesn't really tell is how much... Roy Jones Jr. absolutely adored that dog and how that dog had never had any issues before or any incidents before. And it was just basically like him, again, stamping his authority on a situation by going, right, you know what? It's bit me daughter, I'm going to go and kill the bastard. And that's exactly what he did. When Jr. returned to find out what had happened, he was furious with his father for him. It was a cold-blooded execution as far as he was concerned. I had a dog that I bought from a friend to breed friend of mine let the dog loose. The dog bit my sister, but they got him off of the, my sister. She went, they took her home. She was okay. Didn't hurt her really bad. You know, a couple of bruise marks on her arm. My father come to my house. I wasn't there and just killed the dog. You know, and it's like, that did it for me. So based on that, he actually made the decision to end their partnership and hire another trainer who was actually his trainer from the Soul Games, Alton Merkison, or Coach Merck, as his full-time trainer from that mo- that moment forward. And Roy explained his actual decision in the documentary Beyond the Glory. It was like God gave me a plain vision. You can go to be you, and you can see how high your flame can go, or you can sit right here, and you're going to die. Roy <laughs> would later say in his career, 
That's probably the worst thing that happened to me that was separating from his dad. Yeah, it's, it's a crazy one, isn't it? He obviously, in in a way, he sort of Roy sums it up. He's probably not the most articulate, considering how we see him now when he's when he's analysing fights. He's a lot more articulate than he was then. But even just just the fact that I can understand where he's coming from, you know, he's he's obviously see it as betrayal. And and I think the one story I did read was that when he actually did see his dad, his dad sort of just pulled up in a car next to him while he was sitting in the car with his friend, and he just said killed your dog and that was it that was all his dad said to him and then drove away and he didn't even mention that his dog he, the dog actually bit his sister and also the other thing Roy does later on go and say is that if he actually shot the dog while he was sort of biting my sister I think it was more of a nip than actual like a, a bite and a hold down he was saying he didn't shoot the dog I get that but it's because the dog actually went back and he felt remorse and obviously I think the reason why I felt it was cold blooded was because it's just the dog sitting there on with a rope around its leash, it's just going up to it and shooting it. It's almost just like an execution. So I can understand where it's coming from. On the other hand, you know, Rottweilers, there's nothing. I know Rottweilers myself, and Rottweilers are very, very, you know, they're, they're not, you know, unless you're breeding them for fighting, which possibly could be the case. So I mean, it's a difficult, it's a difficult one, but I still think his dad took it upon himself to want to hurt. Jones Jr. and just take control like he was of his whole boxing career and he had done it his whole life and I thought the one thing I will say with Jones Jr. is he was that, that takes a lot of guts to do that walk away from your abuser like that and, and have to stand up on your own two feet and I'm, I, you know that just shows you how much of a strong will character he was And so instead of seeking out a promoter like many other fighters would have done he opted to go at it alone even Mr. Slippery himself Don King actually visited Roy three times telling Roy it, he needs to link arms with a brother. <laughs> uh, but thankfully, good old Roy, he, you know, he obviously had a good head on his shoulders and he refused. Many felt that he was basically out of his depth and that he he needed to be affiliated with a major promoter if he was ever going to get that world title shot that he so badly wanted. Roy took control of the promotional company and in less than a year, he managed to secure a world title shot against a certain Bernard Hopkins. So in 1992, also, Jones Jr. ended up with two twin sons, DeAndre, who he calls Dre, and Deshaun, who he calls DJ. So he ends up with two kids and becomes a father himself in 1992 as well. And he moves in to 1993 and 94. Now, the IBF middleweight title at this point becomes vacant after Jones Tony, who was the former middleweight champion, decides to move up to the super middleweight division following his win over Iron Barkley three months earlier. Now, Hopkins was the number one ranked fighter by the IBF, and Jones was ranked number two. Roy had actually broken his right hand before the fight and called on the tough training of his father to pull him through. Alton tried to convince Roy that he didn't need to take the fight, but Roy was adamant that he needed to take the fight, and he actually said, This was my big moment. I'm one-handed, but I've still got a shot. People don't realise that I went through that kind of pain, but I had to do it. Jones Jr. finally manages to get that monkey off his back and pick up his first world title on May the 22nd, 1993 in Washington, D.C., defeating the future undisputed middleweight champion of the world, Bernard Hopkins, who was 22-1 at the time via a unanimous decision. Go to the scorecards and all three judges, Lynn Carter, Eugene Grant and Aldo, scored the bout 116 to 112 for the winner by unanimous decision. And now the IBF middleweight champion of the world, Roy Jones Jr. 
Roy Jones, congratulations. This has been a long time coming. I know you've been looking forward to it. Yeah, definitely been a long time coming. And something I was looking forward to. I knew I was going to have a tough time. Um, I got to take my head off to Bernard Hopkins, man. He's a tough guy. I promise he's a tough guy. But uh, I just basically out boxing, stayed on the outside. In the inside, he couldn't really do me a lot of harm. And I could stay inside of his power, so he wasn't really that dangerous. Uh, he landed a couple good shots, but he never really had me hurt. So, you know, I was pretty safe. I got more than I wanted to, but it's the world title my first time. Hey, let's call it we number one, baby. And all three judges produced the same cards on the night, 160 and 112. And he dedicated the victory to his father by saying, I will lay the belt at the feet of the man who made it possible, my father. But, unfortunately for him, Big Roy refused to see him. Fred Levine said this about Senior, I love him but he's the most stubborn person to ever live. And even Roy Jones Jr.'s sister, Tiffany, said, he, as in Roy Jones Jr., made several attempts to make amends with our father, but he wasn't very open to it because they had different views on what had happened in that incident with the dog. Yes, it's sad, isn't it, really, that even after winning that world title, he's still looking to, to you know, he's... He, he, being public with it as well when he, he he's saying it it's down to my father this is why I'm the world champion and, and the fact that he had that problem with his right hand he never ever ever put that out there and that's one thing you know we, we spoke about with um, Hitman Hearns when he broke his hand he didn't say anything and this is the sort of thing that makes you a real classy person the fact that you don't make excuses even if he won or lost I mean he's not even mentioned the fact he hurt his hand which is, which is just a, a great advert to him now where we all now have the perspective um, when it comes to Roy's victory over Hopkins, because obviously we know what Hopkins went on to do, we are now able to understand just how much of an excellent victory that was for him, especially with a broken hand, which, as I mentioned, was not made public knowledge. So the jury was still out pretty much on Jones Jr. And many felt they had not been tested and that his performance against the next level opponents were average at best. Jones Jr., stepped in to the super middleweight division for three non-title fights against a durable and awkward fighter in uh, Fulani Malinga, who was 35 and 8, and who was also the guy that went the distance with Nigel Ben and Chris Eubank. You can check their records. They, he did actually do that. And I believe that if he had got through this fight, he got another title shot against one of them. Uh, also fought Fermin Chirincho, who was 12, 7 and 2, and Danny Garcia was 25 and 12. Now, Malinga and Garcia both fell in six, whereas Chirino took Jones the 10-round distance before attentions turned to a, a top middleweight contender who was around at the time, which was Thomas Tate. So, all that being said, he actually didn't do too bad against average midicure opponents, albeit, you know, as, as we mentioned, I mean, Hopkins, what a great win that was for him that people just didn't realise at the time. So just over a year since winning the IBF middleweight title, Jones Jr. was ready to make the first defence at the MGM Grand in Las Vegas in front of the biggest crowd and earning his biggest purse of $600,000 on a bill that was promoted by Bob Aaron's top rank and labelled the Rising Stars. In a co-main event that featured a young Oscar De La Hoya, Jones floored Tate with a left hook to the chin early in the second and Tate did beat the referee's count but his trainer Eddie Mustafa Mohammed stopped the fight. So after vacating this IBF middleweight title, Jones Jr. decides to also move up to the super middleweight division to face the current champion, which is the IBF champion, James Tony, who was 44, zero losses and two draws on his record. And this was on November the 18th. 1994 at the MGM Grand Garden 
in Las Vegas, Nevada. Now, James Tony came into the fight severely weight-drained after weighing in at 167 pounds the day before. He then goes on to put 17 pounds overnight and came in the ring at 184 pounds. Now, this was billed as the Uncivil War, and irrespective of the weight issues, James Tony was still the slight bet in favour probably because obviously his resume at the time was better on paper against Jones Jr., who'd really still never been tested at this point in his career. And in the fight, Roy Jones Jr. knocked down James Tony in the third round. He stuck out his chin as bait and Tony mimicked him and got caught. And although Jones (laughs) did catch Tony, it was the momentum of the body that followed through that really knocked the champion down. And his coach, Coach Merck, called it a chicken move in reference to Jones Jr.'s love of cockfighting. Jones Jr., just brilliant on this night. He showed fantastic hand speed. He switched up the angles of his shots and he had such a high-energy output in the fight. He won every single round against one of the pound-for-pound best, which changed many people's perspective on Jones Jr. This test that we was looking for, that was it. That test was against James Tony. That was his breakout night for me. Roy, congratulations. A terrific performance. Did you know from the first minute and a half that you were just too quick for him? Could you tell from the get-go that you were just too quick for him, Roy? Yeah. Yeah, I was much, um, I was much too fast for him. I know that um, his, the way he lost is going to be a difficult thing for him to handle. But first of all, I thank God for giving me the opportunity to come out and do the things I do. Uh, oh, all my praise to God. Thank my father and Coach Merck both for the terrific training that they've been doing throughout my entire career. And uh, thank God for everything. I'm a happy man. You me- God is all able, baby. It's all possible. Just have faith in God. You mentioned the weight. What did you know personally about the difficulty he was having with weight? Well, I come from... 178 sometimes, 180 to make 160. That's a very tough thing to do and fight 12 rounds. I'm a lot bigger than guys. Most of the time I'm a lot faster, but it's tough when it's fat. And I wasn't I wouldn't fat. I'd just be thick at 178 most of the time. Good work, man. Thank you, baby. Hey, good work, man. Hey, good work, baby. Hey. You all right? Hey, yeah. He is. Hey, yeah. Good work, baby. Be back. I'll be back. I'll be back. James told we'll be back. Watch out, like, every week. But, yeah, and, um, you know, it's just it's a tough thing to do. And uh, I commended him on how he made the weight, but I knew that he would be washed. I mean, you know, the weight would work. Absolutely. I, I couldn't agree with you more. It really was a, a, a great night for him. And, and, and again, I think he even mentioned that he had problems with his right hand as well and still got through it again. But, you know, he was obviously against a, a severely weight-drained Tony. But end of the day, he was still knocking people out for fun. And James Tony was a monster. And he was one of the best pound-for-pound fighters around at the time. And I think Penel Whitaker was one of the others. And, and you've just beaten the pound-for-pound best. So now, all of a sudden, he is the man. He is the, the, the limelight. I mean, he was already um, a massive fan in, in Pensacola. They loved him out there. And now he really did become the main man. And, and from this point, he, he decided to move up. And on, on March... 18, 1995, Jones Jr. made his first defence of the IBF super middleweight title against Antoine Bird, who was a top contender across all governing bodies at the time. Now, this guy was actually perceived as a pretty decent fighter, and in front of his adoring fans and his faithful at the Civic Centre in Pensacola, who absolutely, they really did adore him, Jones showed just how clinical and patient he could be by knocking Bird out in that first round to the dollar out of the home crowd, and it was a magical moment for Jones Jr. and with most of the centre actually waving white hand towels in appreciation. If you actually see it, it is on YouTube. It is really quite 
stunning to watch. He's always he reminded me of like the Bernabeu in Real Madrid when they when they wave their white hand, hankies with when someone scores a magnificent goal and but it actually is associated with the ice hockey team in, in Pensacola or somewhere around that area. It really is a stunning just a, a, a watch really. I'd recommend anyone to watch it. I know it's only one round but the build up to it and everything else he, he obviously goes down to Pensacola take that title with him after beating Tony and absolutely destroys Bird in the first round. So three months later at the convention hall in Atlantic City Roy Jones Jr. stops uh, another legendary name Vinny Pazienza and he destroys Vinny Pazienza in six rounds and if you've ever seen this particular fight this is one where he just completely outclasses Pazienza. So he uses his blistering jab more predominantly than ever, but was clearly agitated following the fight after his accurate and destructive finish of a guy who had only recently just got back into the ring after breaking his neck. Roy Jones Jr. said, I was afraid that he might be get re-injured, mess his neck up and it might kill him. I was very afraid. I don't want to kill nobody. And obviously deep down... Jones Jr. is still quite distraught from what happened to his friend Gerald McClellan earlier that year in 1995. The famous Nigel Ben-Gerald McClellan fight, which you can go and listen to on our Legendary Nights podcast. We've done a full, in-depth build-up breakdown and aftermath of that one. And obviously the Brit, Nigel Ben, he was still being cited for a potential unification fight further down the line, as was McClellan before that tragic night in London. And if you watch the post-fight interview, after Gerald McClellan versus Nigel Ben, you'll hear Don King there at ringside saying, we're going to get one more belt and then we're going to go for Roy. Now, by this point, Jones Jr. was now considered to be the best pound-for-pound fighter in the world alongside Penel Whitaker and was also being compared with the greats of the sport, the two Sugar Rays and even Muhammad Ali specifically. A month before he made his third defence of the IBF title against veteran Tony Thornton, a big hurricane hit his home in Pensacola and it ended up costing Roy 30 of his 200 fighting cocks, or his roosters. When I say fighting cocks, it might actually be referred to as something <laughs> else there. <laughs> so just to clarify for just to clarify for the listeners there, uh, we, we are talking about his roosters, not literally cocks. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Obviously, he did. He, he lost 30 of those 200 cocks. And the, the funny thing is, is, they escaped from their cages and they did what they taught them to do, which was kill each other. <laughs> so even, that was even more crazier. They actually just murdered each other when they escaped. So, uh, yeah, just a, <laughs> just a little side note for you. So, Jones, obviously, he, he beloved the Civic Centre. He absolutely loved it. He, you know, he, he, he loved fighting there. And basically, the storm had damaged Pacific Centre as well and, and he did say that he has no intention of moving the Fulton fight to Vegas or Atlantic City which would have earned him a lot more money thousands and hundreds of thousands more money and he told the authorities they would not be fighting anywhere else so to preserve the date which was September 30 they made sure all repair work was carried out and it was completed in time so 10,000 crammed into the centre with their white towels waving again to watch their hero drop Fulton with his trademark left hook in the second before a barrage of unanswered shots forced referee Brian Gary to halt proceedings in the third round. And and that is another fight to watch. Again, just just, just to watch those 10,000. Obviously, it's not a lot. It's not a big venue. It's going to earn a massive amount of money. But they were they absolutely loved him. I mean, even the down to the press, they had like full full front page press of Jones Jr. and 
and he would just be out and about and he was active. People could go and see him. It was just, they, they loved it. I mean, to be the best pound for pound up there with Penel Whitaker, he could quite easily have just disappeared to Vegas and Atlantic City, uh, millions and millions of dollars, but he didn't. That's credit to Jones Jr. as well. So to kickstart 1996, Roy Jones Jr. won a non-title foul against a certain fighter by the name of Murkai Souza. Now, the story of this particular one was that it was a non-title fight because he actually came over the £168 limit. Now, it was a controversial stoppage against Souza in two rounds at Madison Square Gardens. Now, Jones Jr. at his point, you know, this is where people to consider to be him at his best in his peak, to be the untouchable man, to be the man that can't be touched within the super middleweight division. And... At this point, he decided to make his fight against the future world champion, Eric Lucas, more interesting by playing a pro basketball game earlier in the day. <laughs> it's quite a famous story, actually. If you, you do look online, you will see this story. And in a one-sided victory in Jacksonville, the fight was stopped at the end of the 11th round on the advice of the ringside physician due to a bad cut on Lucas's right eye. So back at the Garden in October, and Jones Jr. makes the fifth and last defence of his super middleweight crown against Byron Brannon, who was another fighter to have never been stopped before until he met the 1996 pound-for-pound pound king. Now, Brannon was put down in the first round before being knocked out clean in the second because Jones Jr. is just so much better than his opponents. But the problem was he weren't earning anywhere near enough money. But he still decided to continue to, to self-promote and be this promoter. And even though the Levines, the attorneys, tried to get him aligned with the big promoters where he could earn megabucks, Jones ended up being a victim of his own era, really. And he said, I quickly ran out of opponents that people would get for the big fights. I didn't have the other opponents that other people had. Yeah, it's interesting. He was a victim of his own era, to be fair. I mean, even Bob Arum did turn around and say that there's no such thing as no opponent. He said that with the right promotion team, you're able to create the right opponent. And, and that's one thing we know about Bob Arum. He loves to marinate, <laughs> his favourite saying. He he was always one guy that was always in Jones Jr.'s ear and he did fight on a couple of his bills, a few of his bills. And Jones just wasn't interested. He just didn't want to know. He was always giving up hundreds of thousands as well, all the time. And in the end, Roy Jones Jr. moved up to the light heavyweight division to face 39-year-old and interim WBC champion Mike McCallum, who was 49-3-1. And we all know Mike McCallum, devastating fighter in his time, 39 years of age, probably a little bit beyond it at this point. And uh, he fought him at the Ice Palace in Tampa, Florida. Now, Jones landed a right, to the jaw just before the bell just before the bell ended round 10 that put Mike McCallum on the seat of his pants Jones Jr. won the fight convincingly but it wasn't without its controversy the Florida Commission refused to use a WBC appointed official saying it was the state body's jurisdiction and it would use its own judges so the WBC president at the time who was Jose Salomon then appointed his own set of judges and had them score the fight from the front row of the working media section, which is just the most bizarre thing you'll ever hear. So because they didn't feel that the WBC judges weren't in their jurisdiction, they weren't allowing it. So basically what we had was we had six sets of judges, basically. Not that it mattered a single iota because all three Florida officials scored the fight, 120 to 107. And the WBC judges, who was Marty Denkin, had it 116 to 1111. Tom Kaxmarak 
had it 1-1-19 to 108. And Barbara Perez had it 170-110. So six judges, all six of them had it in uh, Jones's favour. And Denkin, who was one of the judges, said that the dual set of judges, so his he, comment was, I've been in boxing for 50 years, and as far as I know, that has never happened. After the defeat, Mark McCallum, who has fought many, many tough fighters and has been a, 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 a great credit to boxing himself, actually called Jones the greatest fighter of all time. When I fought Mike McCallum, I fought Mike McCallum because Mike McCallum told me he was in a situation and he needed a little help. And he was willing to fight for that little help. So I said, you know what, Mike? On most occasions, I wouldn't fight you. But if you need help and you're in a situation, I'll do it for you. Only for you. In the 10th round, Mike started to feel a little frisky because I really was kind of carrying him. And he came at me a little bit. I said, okay, let me show you something, Mike. Pop, 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 down Mike go. <laughs> so don't get this twisted. I ain't like I have to try to do this to you, but I'm trying to do what you asked me to do, which do your favor, right? But I went out there to hurt Mike McCallum because that's not who I was and not who I am. You feel where I'm coming from? But so Abel says, we're for Mike McCallum. I didn't want to fight Mike McCallum. I did that because Mike needed help at the time. In box, if I can help anybody, I will help him. Wow, so 1996, Roger Jones Jr. being pronounced as the greatest fighter of all time. And we go into 1997, and this brings up a, an interesting year for Roger Jones Jr. when he was involved with fights with a certain Montel Griffin. So, Jones Jr. is upgraded to the full WBC light heavyweight champion when former holder Fabrice Tizio decided he would fight as a cruiserweight. So he made his first defence against the undefeated Montel Griffin, who was 26-0 at the time, and this was to take place at the Taj Mahal Hotel and Casino in Atlantic City. Now, in the fight, Jones hurt Griffin with a right in the ninth, but with 46 seconds left, Griffin went down on one knee, and for some reason, Jones hit him with a right and then followed it with a left hook, and Griffin toppled over before being counted out by referee Tony Perez. Now, after counting out Griffin... Perez actually disqualified Jones for hitting Griffin while he was down. And this is what he had to say. I was counting because if Griffin could have continued, I'd have taken one or two points away from Jones. But Jones said, I wasn't sure he was down. I didn't have time to think and see whether he was down. I thought he was down and he might come back at me. I wasn't looking at his knees. I was looking at his face. I didn't feel the ref try to separate me at all. And the HBO unofficial judge at the time, Harold Lederman, had Jones ahead 76-75 after eight rounds. The New Daily News had Griffin ahead 77-75. Now, after the fight, Griffin was absolutely gloating in the post-fight interview. And Jones and his team went back to the dressing room. And amongst the mayhem, Jones was calm. And he told Levine, get me the rematch. I don't care what it costs, get me the rematch. Yeah, it is a crazy one because, I mean, I've watched the recently, uh, you know, as we do for this career profiles and, and I felt that James Jr. was winning the fight. Although Griffin was unorthodox, he had the one certain guy in Eddie Futch, almost lost his name there, but Eddie Futch was in Griffin's corner and he was the one that sort of exploited those. It was, it was weird because he was so unorthodox, James. He had this. He would never throw a jab, so he'd sort of throw that loop in left. And it, there was always opportunities for fighters to take advantage of that. But the trouble was, because he was so fast and so quick and so agile and switched the angles, it was difficult for fighters to, to to do anything. But Griffin did manage to do that within moments in the fight. And, and I think I, I will put that down to Eddie Futch. And 
Uh, but for me, I still thought Jones was ahead, especially with a knockdown. He stupidly hit him twice. I don't know. I, I sort of I can agree with it. I think maybe a couple of points would have been the better decision. But obviously, Griffin just fell over as well, and he milked it. He absolutely milked it, Griffin. And and it, the thing is, is obviously Jones Jr. was upset. He was disappointed with what happened. And before the rematch, Griffin continued with his gloating, saying that he's going to go all the way over to Pensacola, drive down Jones's street and start celebrating with his hometown people and basically infuriated Jones and it really pissed him off. Um, and not only was the decision annoyed him, the fact that he'd been disqualified and lost his title, but the fact was is that this guy's giving it the big and after he fell up. And, and for, for Jones Jr., he was saying Griffin just, just he literally just give up. He'd give up the fight. He was saying, if that was me, I would have got up and carried on fighting and let the other guy take the point or whatever. I would have got up and carried on. He blatantly milked it. And Roy Jones Jr. then became, this is a, an interesting story, but Jones, Jones himself said he became RJ for this fight, a persona that Jones never wanted to pull out for a fight in case he killed somebody. And that was his words. During a dispute between manager and coach, Eddie Futch left the Griffin camp, which was a catastrophic move from Griffin for me and it set up what was going to be basically as they build it unfinished business and, and poor decisions poor decisions from Griffin to even go Jones Jr. the way he did and to, to kick Eddie Futch out of his camp as well which was just a bad bad move well he made the complete error of misjudging Roy Jones Jr. really by yeah. gloating over a fight which really he, he was on the on the verge of losing he was just very very lucky that Roy Jones Jr decided to throw that extra punch and as a result of that he ended up losing that fight via disqualification so obviously the rematch was made in a promotion as you rightly pointed out which was billed unfinished business and both fighters earned 1.5 million Roy Jones Jr. faces off against Montel Griffin at a bingo hall in Foxwood Resort (laughs) and Casino in front of a sellout crowd of 4,500. This persona of RJ certainly came out to play on that night. Roy Jones Jr. or RJ floored Griffin with a left hook early in the first round before landing an absolute peach of a leaping left hook, which sort of twists into an uppercut as he's throwing it, and it put him down for the count at 2 minutes and 31 seconds of the round. After the fight, Jones spoke about his inner RJ. I didn't want to have to do that. I don't want to try and hurt people. I didn't want to hurt that kid. But if I got the chance, I might have killed that kid by mistake. I don't want to do that. That's not my intention. My intention is to come out here and do my things and be done with it. That's why I don't like that old Roy Jones. You don't want me to pull the old RJ out. You don't want to see my RJ. (laughs) I'll tell you what, that is quite frightening. Because I think that RJ even says comes from deep within from the days of his abusive father that's the rj that he says he, he tries to keep within and he even did make an allergy with a with a marine and he was saying if you train a marine to kill people and then just send them out into normal life how are you going to stop him from killing people and that's basically what he was he was using as a comparison to this inner rj obviously you don't want to piss off Roy jones jr and the one thing that the one other thing as well is many people always said with Roy Jones Jr., although he was this magnificent fighter, he was never destructive enough. He never really wanted to just get rid of an opponent. He always, although he did at times, it was one shot. He would throw the one shot. And if that didn't really put the guy down, he, he wouldn't really follow it through. And I think this was the fight, this second fight, where you really see 
real Roy Jones Jr. for me, and, and it was a, a devastating performance. And Griffin, wow, he got absolutely butchered that night. So we move on to 1998, and 1998's a strange year for him, really, because in early 1998, he decides to relinquish the WBC light heavyweight title because he planned to move up to heavyweight and face former heavyweight champion James Bosser Douglas for the IBF heavyweight title on May the 2nd, 1998 in Atlantic City. Now, by March the 21st, Graciano Rocigani had won the WBC title, which was vacated by Jones against Michael Nunn to become the new champion. And meanwhile, Jones changed his mind and decided to back out of the Douglas fight. His father, Jones Sr., who had come back into his life, convinced Junior to stay at light heavyweight, telling him that he was risking his life by fighting Douglas. And it was for that reason that the fight between Roy Jones Jr. and Virgil Hill, who was 43-2 and at the time, was a non-title fight, which was in front of a crowd of 8,700. Now, Jones Jr. knocked out Virgil Hill with a right to the body that broke his ribs, resulting in Hill's first knockout career loss. Now, the KO was actually named the Ring Knockout of the Year, and Jones received $4 million, including a half a million dollar bonus for having extended his contract with HBO, along with a $125,000 Rolls Royce from the Grand Casino who hosted that fight. So that's a crazy little story for anybody that didn't know that happened at that particular time. So he, was, he was potentially going to go and fight James Buster Douglas, who, as we know, beat Mike Tyson in 1990. He decides to back out of that. He's back in contact with his dad. His dad's back in his life, having to speak up by saying, you know, you're risking your life by taking this particular fight. And then he ends up going back down, fights Virgil Hill, destroys him, earns a shitload of money in the, in the same sense and still solidifies himself as, as the best light heavyweight in the world. Crazy. It really is, isn't it? And then, obviously... His intentions were always going to be to to eventually fight in the heavyweight division, but because you know he just he's, his father spoke talked him out of it basically, and uh, he went back on it. By then, obviously, <laughs> the WBC have already made look like they do. You know, you vacate the title within a month or so. There's another there's another guy that's got your title, so there was a problem. So in June 1998, the W BC stated that Jones would now become a champion in recess. Now, how many times have we heard that one? Goodness sake, <laughs> even today. Rochin, Rochin Nagli, I've got to call him Rochi because I can't pronounce his name. He was the interim champion. Now, Jones and Rochi were scheduled to fight in Mississippi on November 6, 1999. Now, however, promoter Murad Mohammed called off the bout because Rochi didn't attend a press conference in New York and he couldn't promote a bout with Rochi if he didn't cooperate. Now, the WBC sub- subsequently stripped Rochi outright. It was basically a decision that almost sent the WBC into liquidization before they got an out-of-court settlement with Rochi. That was agreed in ba- further on in a few years later, on August 2004. And this was massive. I think it was like 30-something million dollars, I think he was going to get from the WBC, which which was it went to court. It was all a bit crazy. And then... He lost his title and it got a bit messy. But fortunately, the WBC managed, well, I say fortunately, I don't know if that's fortunate or not, but <laughs> they managed to uh, survive liquidation. But yeah, it was this guy that almost sent the WBC packing. We might never have had the WBC today. Yeah, so it's just an interesting story. So from that point, obviously now, Jones Jr. was the leg- legitimate WBC champion by July 18, 1998. And Jones Jr. finally made his first defence of that title, the WBC title, against Lou, Del- Lou Devell, who was 27-1. and So this was an, a unification fight. 
Jones was actually put down for the first time in his professional career in round eight, but went on to win by unanimous decision. So a good, good victory in the end. He he becomes a unified world champion. Yeah, WBA and WBC light heavyweight champion by beating Deval there in that in that particular fight. So then he moves on in November of 1998 and takes on Otis Grant, who was the current WBO super middleweight champion at the Foxwood Resort in Connecticut. Now. Jones floored Grant once in the 6th round and twice in the 10th before Grant's trainer, Russ Anber, threw in the towel after the second knockdown, earning Jones $2 million in both fights. Now, in a poor excuse of an defence, Roy Jones Jr. made light work of Richard Frazier in just two rounds on January the 9th, 1999. And after the one-sided victory, Roy Jones Jr. said... It wasn't very satisfying. I don't pick these guys. He was the number one contender. It's not my job to tell these people, as in the sanctioning bodies, what to do. So we move on for Jones Jr. And his next opponent was a lot more credible. It was the IBF light heavyweight champion, Reggie Johnson, who held a record of 39-5-1. And the opportunity to become the first undisputed world light heavyweight champion since the days of Michael Spinks. Now, he'd relinquished the title back in 1985 as a campaign to go up to the heavyweight division. And you'll get to hear more about that on the Michael Spinks career profile on this feed. (laughs) Go and check it out. Great profile. Now, Johnson was actually knocked down once in the first round and once in the third, as Jones went on to win a comprehensively unanimous decision with all three judges scoring the fight 120 to 106 to Roy Jones Jr., yeah, so he's by this point now he's he's obviously the path packing. Everyone's saying how great he is and, and Jones Junior's next opponent was on January fifteenth, two thousand and and Jones Junior outpointed uh, David Telesco at the Radio City Music Hall in New York City. Uh, the the music city that I think that was refurbished as well. So he was the first a uh, first event I think there since the refurbishment. But he was probably more remembered for his exuberant uh, ring walk, which is one thing you always know. One thing we haven't mentioned is Jones Jr. does love his ring walks, and he is always that's probably that's all part of the parcel with Jones Jr. And this one in particular really sticks out in the fact that he had Red Man and Method Man accompany him into the ring. Whitney Houston was singing "God Bless America," so it was all fantastic and dandy for Roy Jones Jr. winning the fight as well against Telesco, who was a muscly guy, a bit bigger just wasn't able to do anything against a, a, a guy who was just ahead of everybody else. And, and after the fight, Jones said the reason why he didn't score a knockout was because I fractured my left wrist in a motorcycle accident three and a half weeks ago. Everybody said I should cancel the fight, but I said I can't. I've got a big date in New York. If I had both hands, I would have knocked him out. I only had one. <laughs> Just goes to show you how good of a fighter this guy was. He's absolutely mental. Now that's all that training from his father. Though, oh the yeah, the one-handed <laughs> training. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's all this. Um, it's all this really tough love that he had as a kid from his dad. So it's five months down the line now, and we're at the Conseco Fieldhouse in Indianapolis, and Gerard Jones Jr. is back in the ring, stopping Richard Hall in an 11-round battering, which left HBO commentator Larry Merchant questioning the referee, which is saying he ought to be pistol-whipped for allowing that to go on. (laughs) (laughs) Good old Larry Merchant, fantastic. Now, the main story related to the banned substances being used as both Jones and Hall tested positive for anabolic steroids after the fight. 
Jones was five or six times over an acceptable level, said Jacob Hall, who was the chairman of the Indiana State Athletic Commission. Hall was about ten times above an acceptable level. Now, for Jones Jr., he insisted that his positive test was a result of ingesting the supplement called Ripped Fuel. No penalties or suspensions were issued because Indiana, like many states, had no legal authority to test for steroids. The IBF sent letters to Jones and Hall informing each man that they had tested positive for an unspecified anabolic steroid. But no further action was never taken. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Still, even back then, what was this, 20 years ago? Ah, it's crazy, isn't it, really? So anyway, moving on, sandwiched in between a points win over Derek Harmon were two pay-per-view bouts. His first since James Tony in 1994, and that's just incredible for me. I mean, pay-per-view bouts, I would have just assumed he was pay-per-view all the time, being one of the pound-for-pound best. So in September 9, 2000, in a bill labelled as Bourbon St. Brawl in New Orleans, against Eric Hardin, who had to actually withdraw due, due to a torn bicep in the tent. A year later, at the Staples Centre in Los Angeles, young decision Julio Cesar Gonzalez in a bill that was that was called, quite simply, Roy versus Julio. Which <laughs> 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 was a big credit. He could have thought it sounded a bit better. In front of a crowd of 20,409. And he actually claimed the WBC in the ninth defence, the WBA in an eighth, the IBF in a fifth, the IBO in the second defence and the NBA title in the first defence and then lastly the IBA and WBF it was also on the line so he had all these titles and there was a certain one missing but one thing just a side note Jones did start his rap music career in 2001 with an album title Round One the album and the debut single was Y'all Must Have Forgot which he, he did reference a lot to Hopkins and James Tony but the one thing missing from that list that I I just mentioned there was from that impressive collection really was was the ring magazine which stopped giving out belts for world championships in 1990 but began again in 2002 when jones knocked out of glenn kelly in the seventh round in his typical cockfighting style this is also another knockout you can see pretty much the whole of his career on youtube which is pretty much what i've done the last few days is where we're isolating ourselves jones put both hands behind his back before leading over the jab with a right hand to the head that sent Kelly down for the can. And it really is a beautiful. The way he sort of puts his hands behind his back, sticks his chin out, and then as he goes to throw the jab, he just throws his right hand, literally floors Glenn Kelly, and he's out for the count. It is an absolute stunning finish. And, and only Jones Jr. could do something like that. So the last fight for Roy Jones Jr., in the light heavyweight division, was actually against one of our own. It was Clinton Woods. And Clinton Woods was a really tough fighter for anybody that didn't know who he was or the fights he was involved in. He had some great fights with Glenn Johnson in the light heavyweight division. But Roy Jones Jr. was a bit of a step too far for Clinton Woods because in his highest paid pay-per-view bout, this was an absolute one-sided... I wouldn't call it a demolition job, but it was it was a lopsided victory for him for Roy Jones Jr. against Clinton Woods. Yeah, it was, wasn't it? And uh, it was, as I said, his, the high, his highest pay-per-view belt in his career was Britain, against Britain's very own uh, and future world champion, Clinton Woods, as you mentioned, was 32-1 at the time at the Rose Garden in Portland, Oregon. And, and Woods was basically put out of his misery in the sixth round by his own corner in another lopsided victory for Jones Jr. And as you said, it was his last at light, in the light heavyweight division before he finally decided to move in 
to the heavyweight division, which was something obviously we've spoke about and was going to happen. It was this was the first step for him into the heavyweight division, and and he doesn't do too badly either. <laughs> well, we're going to go through the years 2003 to 2005 first of all, and we're going to talk about his career and how it went down during them couple of years. So there were no great challenges, obviously, for George Jones Jr. during his absolute peak. So it had been difficult to assess just how good he was without a decent dancing partner or a rival that could have made him even greater. And the only other fighter that has ever fallen into that bracket was actually Larry Holmes, the heavyweight, who dominated the heavyweight division in the late 70s and early 80s during his peak. So Jones didn't see it that way. And he was quoted as saying, I'm a combination of Foreman's punch, Ali's speed, Robinson's skill and Hagler's toughness, a statement that indicates he feels that he should be put alongside those greats. Now, Larry Merchant, incisiveness on the other hand, pointed out that it's true, there are no serious challenges for Roy Jones at light heavyweight, but there are serious challenges if he wants them. If he wants to do what the great dominant fighters of history have all done, they've moved up in weight looking for challenges. Yeah, and, and you sort of can't put it past Larry Merch. I think um, not only Larry, I'm sure many other observers and fight fans are thinking the same thing, that OK, he's dominated the division, you know, we've dominated, we've gone through all the divisions, you know, the middleweight, super middleweight, and then into a lot of heavyweight. You know, it made sense for him to jump up to the heavyweight division, although obviously his father wasn't wasn't too keen on it, as we had already mentioned. He decided to take this opportunity. So Roy Jones Jr. accepted the challenge of Merchant as well as many observers and, and those who doubted him by stepping into the ring with the WBA heavyweight champion, John Marie. And this fight was billed, never take a heavyweight lightly. And on March 1st, 2003, at the Thomas and Mack Center in Las Vegas, Jones Jr. brought in a certain Mackie Shieldstone. And, and for those that are not too familiar with, uh, with Mackie, Mackie Shieldstone was the guy who conditioned Michael Spinks for when he, he took up his challenge for moving to the heavyweight division to fight Larry Holmes. He, he was a guy that no one really knew about. So obviously, Roy Jones Jr. obviously seen what he had done with, with Spinks, what he thought this was a perfect opportunity to bring him into, to get him into a great condition, the best condition for a bigger Ruiz. Jones actually officially weighed in at 193 pounds and John Ruiz at 226 pounds for the fight. So Jones made history by becoming the seventh boxer in history to win a world title in four weight divisions and the first former world middleweight champion since Bob Fitzsimmons in 1897 to win a world heavyweight title by winning on all three scorecards against Ruiz, which was 116 to 112, 108 to 110, 117 to 111. And it quite simply was a dominating display from Roy Jones Jr. Let me tell you something. First of all, I have to take this time out to thank God for blessing me for giving me this vision so many years ago, actually, and uh, just putting it in me, man, to come out and show what God can do through you if you only believe. That's what took the doubt away. I knew God planned this for me. I've been knowing God had this plan for me. I just didn't know how it would happen, when it would happen, where it would happen, but I knew God had a plan for me. When you went into the ring, the bell rings, you're going out there, you're facing the biggest man you've ever faced. What concerned you at that moment? Uh, just the fact that I've been walking to a big punch early because I've never been hit in 10 ounce gloves by a heavyweight. So my dad very well prepared me for this. Merck did a wonderful job. Mackie Shieldstone did a hell of a job. We all came together as a team. Uh, Pencil Cole in the house! So you're, so you're saying your first concern was don't get hit by a big 
sucker punch. Yeah, don't get caught by something while I'm asleep. Hey, solving the prisoners, I'll be able to get y'all to solve the prisoners, baby. I'm coming at y'all at Pensacola. Yeah. And, and then, Mobile, baby. And then it looks Gulf Coast. like virtually all of your fights. A guy comes to you, yeah, you hit him, and I he work. stops coming. I told you I was jump on week. I came out there. I knew he thought I was going to run. You didn't see him run. You just saw some more boxing. I didn't run. I boxed. That's what I do for a living. And like I said, until somebody beat Roy Jones, I'm not changing. That's what I am. That's who I am. So according to Mark Taffer, HBO's senior vice president of sports operations and pay-per-views, the fight actually generated 602,000 pay-per-view buys. So this was him making history. This was Roy Jones going up to the heavyweight division to do what was seemingly impossible for a guy of his size by going in and beating a guy of a similar stature who was a world heavyweight champion in John Ruiz. So six weeks after defeating Ruiz, the WBA received written confirmation from Roy Jones that he would keep his heavyweight title and he would relinquish his light heavyweight title. However, he was unable to secure the fights he wanted in the heavyweight division. Now, promoter Murad Mohammed said... We worked on a Holyfield fight and it fell through. We worked on a Tyson fight and it fell through. We wanted Lennox Lewis, but he's not fighting. Jones considered fighting Corey Sanders, but decided against it, saying, Why would I fight a guy who's 6-4, and four, left-handed, and doesn't have a title for less money than I made to fight John Ruiz? <laughs> Quite fair enough, and obviously Corey Sanders is the same fella that beat Klitschko. Yes, it was, and uh, so yeah, I completely understand that. You know, what is the point? You know, he couldn't get the Tyson fight. I think that was the fight he really wanted with Mike Tyson. That would have been a, a terrific encounter, wouldn't it, Mike Tyson and Jones Jr.? But wasn't to be, and uh, Jones finally decided to return back to the light heavyweight division and fight Antonio Tarwa, who was 21-2 and two at the time. Now, he had won... Two of Jones's vacated light heavyweight titles, and he fought him at the Mandalay, Mandalay Bay Resort and Casino in Las Vegas, Nevada. Jones was guaranteed five million, and Tarva one point six million, which is interesting considering that although Jones didn't lose his titles in the ring, he, he, he relinquished them to move up to heavyweight. Tarva being the champion, only getting one point six is quite interesting. But Tim Smith of the New York Daily News reported he, as in Jones Jr had to lose 25 pounds to move down from the heavyweight division uh, to make the 175-pound limit to face Tarva. Five days before that match, Jones actually weighed in at 183 pounds. He was gaunt, drawn at the weigh-in. He sat slumped on his stall while he waited to step on the scales. Once he climbed into the ring, Jones was drained after four rounds and survived mainly because Tarver decided to counter instead of pressing the action. First Tarver fight when I beat it behind, it was hard because I had no energy and I just came back for that 25 pound loss. That probably was the hardest fight I ever had to fight because I had no energy and I still won with no energy. So what did that tell you? If I could beat you with no energy, then you know, you're not really a factor to me. I mean, yeah, you came back, you got me because I had other things going on. And I don't, I don't talk to the world about my issues and my problems all the time, so I kind of just go through my stuff silently. I have the same thing. I could tell the world what happened, but it's not their business. I don't do that, so I don't make no excuses. I don't cry. I keep it moving. You understand me? But that was the hardest fight I ever had with that first fight. It certainly did. So he got to the point where he really struggled to bring the weight down to the light heavyweight limit once more. Understandably so, he'd fought so hard to get himself up to the heavyweight limit that he decided to come down and obviously receive a, a fantastic payday there of $5 million against Tarver's $1.6 million, which, again, as you was rightly pointing out, quite strange given that Tarver was the champion, having picked up two of the belts Roy Jones had previously vacated. Now, Jones became the first reigning heavyweight title holder in history to move down in weight and actually
actually win a light heavyweight title by winning a majority decision with the judges giving him 117-111, 116-112 and a 114-114 draw card. He then decided to vacate the WBE heavyweight championship on February the 20th, 2004. And also as a side note for 2004, he decided to form his own little group by the name of Body Headbangers and also released an album as well. <laughs> yeah, he was able to bridge that bridge a gap probably not that it's probably the wrong expression but it's just the way he was able to release his, his music apparently I mean I've not heard too much of James in his music maybe I should do because you know I like a bit of rap but um, he is one fella that apparently is really good I think I've heard, I've heard a couple of his tunes they're alright too bad he's, he's a guy that's actually been able to move over to another side of, of away from boxing which is which is good for him and obviously done well and, then, and on March 15, 2004 going back to the boxing Jones decided to face Tarver in a rematch back at the Mandalay Bay in the resort and casino in Las Vegas. Now, as Jones tried a combination, this is, this is an interesting one because I believe, for me, when I look at Jones's career, I, I think this is probably the one point where, after winning that World Heavyweight title, being so gaunt you know, and so drained, as we've just mentioned, down into that, that fight, and I do believe watching that fight, Tarver does counter a bit and I, and I think he lets him off because I think Tarver was up quite early in that fight and then Jones come back to win quite comfortably but you could see there was it wasn't quite the same Jones Jr. that we had seen and for me when he took this rematch against Tarver I, I felt that at this point he should have just given himself a bit more time and basically this, this fight did not go well for him Alright you guys are giving instructions in the dressing room do you have any questions? I got a question you got any excuses tonight Roy? Let's not ask questions like that. Let's test gloves and go to work. Let's go to work. Jones Jr. And, and as Jones tried to a combination in the rematch in the second round, he was caught with a big left hook uh, from Tarver, which put Jones down. And although he did manage to get back to his feet by the can, he was ruled unable to con- continue by referee Jane Nady. And, and I have to say, he was absolutely right to call that. And this was the first comprehensive defeat of Jones Jr.'s defeat and it was his 50th professional fight as well which is which is quite astonishing and in all honesty I mean apart from that one defeat where he got disqualified against Griffin I mean other than that he really had a 49-0 record and we all know how much of a big 49-0 was for Floyd Mayweather and Roy Jones Jr. for me was it was better than Mayweather for me I mean that's just my honest opinion and, and I just think this was a fight that he didn't need to take I, think, I, don't, I don't quite understand why he did it it did work out well, clearly, and quite quite clearly. I think I think for me, Sean, I don't know whether you thought the same, but watching the first fight, he was a bit slow, and then gradually got into it. Watching the second fight, you could see I don't, I just it was just not the same with James Jr. at this point. And I think the the weight gain and then the drop of weight clearly affected him. Yeah, it definitely clearly affected him as this particular fight. This was also the infamous fight between these two where at the face-off in the middle of the ring when the referee is giving his final instructions Antonio Tava says to Roy Jones in his face have you got any excuses tonight Roy before going and knocking him out <laughs> and it's it's so synonymous that that particular incident happening it always sticks out in my mind of Antonio Tava is quite famous for for that particular moment where he says have you got any excuses tonight Roy? and then goes and knocks him out but understandably so He's weight drained, and then he goes back up, and then he comes back down. And we've seen how much of an effect that has on fighters over the years, and this was no particular different. Now, for Roy Jones Jr., 
you could see after this fight, his confidence had, had been shot, really. His confidence had been taken away from him. And in September of 2004, he actually lost for a second time in a row against Glenn Johnson, who was 49-2 and two at the time. He was put down for the count with an overhand right to the side of the head. Jones remained down for several minutes before being helped up and placed on a stool. And after about 15 minutes, he walked out of the ring with the assistance from his trainers. Jones left the arena in an ambulance and was taken to hospital to be evaluated. So we've just talked about the Antonio Tava fight, the effect it's had on him. Then he lost to Glenn Coff Johnson in emphatic fashion as well. And, and at this point, for me personally, at this point in time, would have been the point I would have said call it a day. Yeah, absolutely. I think, I think he should have stopped when he was on top of the world. I think he just got a little bit carried away with himself. I think it was either, he had to move into heavyweight division. He'd either stay at heavyweight or, or I believe he should have just stayed at heavyweight and just, even if he'd have fought a Sanders or someone like that, he could have eventually got a big, big fight for, for me and then ended his career. A bit like Spinks that we did and obviously we all know what happened to Spinks but I just think with with Jones Jr. and then going back down and then winning that first fight against Tarver, I think even then being the first to do that that's a great legacy, isn't it? I mean, I, I just think he should have just stopped then. But obviously, he, he decided to carry on, as we know, and he got it gets done twice, stopped twice, back to back. And after a year out of the ring, Joe Jr. returned to the rubber match against Tarver again at St. Pete Times Forum in Tampa Bay, Florida. And Roy Jones Sr. also returned to his son's corner, his son's training camp, and he was going to be the co-trainer for the fight. And, and Jones was beaten once again, but this time it wasn't a knockout. It was by unanimous decision. And he actually later blamed the loss to Tava on the return of his father. He claimed that he was distracted by the chaos in his corner caused by his father, trying to take control. You know, it's not like we ain't heard that before. From co-trainer, Coach Merck. And he said the agreement was for his father to have his say between man's and then Coach Merck to offer his advice. And these actual words were, if he sticks to the plan, it works for everybody. But my father didn't stick to the plan. He had his assistant up in the ring trying to push Merck out of the way. And I'm seeing all this and I'm still trying to do what I have to do. And it clearly affected him. And, and he put it down to the fact that, once again, he, you know, his father ruined things for him. So we move into 2006 to 2009. This is this is him on the comeback trail now. This is him deciding he wants to have another go and another shot at this. So instead of calling it a day at the age of 37, he decided to continue and was able to win a unanimous decision over Prince Badi Ajamu at the West Quest Arena in Boys, Idaho on July the 29th, 2006, winning the WBO NABO light heavyweight title. And now a year later... Jones outpointed Anthony Hanshaw at the Mississippi Coast Coliseum in Mississippi, setting up a big-name draw in his next fight to go in there with former welterweight star, yes, welterweight star, Felix Trinidad, who at the time was 42-2. So on January the 19th, 2008, at the Garden in New York, at a catchweight, no surprise there, of £170, Jones had noticeable size and speed advantage, which made the difference as he actually knocked Trinidad down twice on his way 
to a dominating unanimous decision. Now, this was a huge fight at the time because these were two stars of the pay-per-view. You've got Roy Jones Jr. and Felix Trinidad, the Puerto Rican, who we know was an absolute star in his own right. This fight actually generated 500,000 pay-per-view buys and 25 million in domestic wow. television revenue. And it was actually also the last fight of Felix Trinidad's career as well. Yeah, really a massive amounts of money and obviously... Two big names there decided, you know, obviously on the slide, it made sense, get a fight, earn a load of money. And, and that's basically what they did. And those three victories actually did help Jones Jr. redeem his reputation with many feeling that he was washed up at the time. The one person after the Glenn Johnson defeat who was hanging around, super midweight, jumped up to light heavyweight and was a big name around at the time, obviously, as we all know. In Britain was Joe Calzaghe. I, I believe Joe Calzaghe felt that after that, Johnson defeat, he actually came out and said that he, he was washed up. But three three victories and beats Trinidad. Joe Calzaghe finally decided that Jones, he, he basically, is ready. He, he feels that he's, he's going to take Jones on now. And so his next opponent was Joe Calzaghe. And, and Joe was, as I say, was the guy that was saying he's washed up. And, and Jones was quick to back those, those thoughts back by saying it did seem like it was the end of an era, but it doesn't seem like that now. They don't think like that now at all. So Jones Jr. clearly still felt they had something to offer in the game. They decided on November 8, 2008 at the Madison Square Garden at the age of 39 years old. Jones Jr. faced the ring magazine light heavyweight champion in the world, Joe Calzaghe, who was actually three years his junior since so 36 years old. Jones actually knocked Calzaghe down. This is a fight I remember well. In actual fact, I didn't watch this fight. I remember listening to this on the radio, and I believe it was uh, Costello commentating, and it was, uh, once again, excellent job for him. And Calzaghe was down, as I mentioned, right at the end of the first round with a straight left to the nose, followed up by a slap right to the head across Calzaghe's face. But the unbeaten champion, he basically bounced back and he dominated joint Jones Jr., as, as we've seen many a times. And, and, and Calzaghe, after the fight, said, I was stunned when he hit me in the second. It was a good shot. That's what champion's all about. When I fought, I come back stronger. And, and following the knockdown, the Welshman was able to overwhelm Jones Jr., as I say, and win a 12-round decision, 118 and 109 all three judges' scorecards. Yeah, it was actually an intriguing fight, really, because these two should have fought each other in the super middleweight division years before. And there was, always, there was always talk of it all the time about about these fights happening. And, and when you look at the career profile of Joe Calzaghe that we've done in our Career Profiles podcast, one of the th- parts of the content in there is about one of the regrets Joe Calzaghe has, is that he wasn't born earlier, because he feels if he would have been born earlier, he probably would have got all them big fights with guys that were in the prime, like the Nigel Benz and the Chris Eubank in his prime, and the Steve Collins and the Roy Jones Jr. So, you know, that's one of the biggest regrets Joe Calzaghe has, and that was something that was way out of his control. But this fight was a faded Roy Jones Jr. And coming to the end of his career, Joe Calzaghe, because at the end of this fight, he actually also retired. This was Joe Calzaghe's last fight as well. So Joe Calzaghe gets knocked down in the first round, gets back up, bounces back and, and dominates the fight and, and makes Jones Jr. just look a complete shell of himself. And it was so sad to see. But yet, he decides once again that he's not going to call it a day. And instead, he clocks up another two victories over Omar Sheikha and Jeff Lacey in 2009. These were both two former opponents of Joe Calzaghe. So, after this, he decides, what's he going to do next? Well, this time, he's going to go up to the cruiserweight division. 
which is somewhere he'd not been yet. So he goes up to the Cruiserweight division against Australian Danny Green and was stopped in the first round in Sydney, Australia. And you know what? He didn't offer any excuses for that defeat either. And it should have really signalled the end of his career. And he was quoted as saying after this loss to Danny Green, we don't make excuses. It was a great performance by Danny. Oh, credit credit to him for, for giving him all the praise. But let's be honest, you know, if he fought Danny Green a few years before... Even if it was at cruiserweight, oh, he would have dominated him. Um, he had no reason to be beating someone like Jones Jr. But, you know, now he's knocking on 40. It really should have just called it a day. And But no, we're moving to 2010, all the way up to 2018, and into his cruiserweight reign. And, and from 2010 through to 2018, Jones Jr. continued to fight. And he was predominantly at cruiserweight. And he had 15 more fights. He actually won 12, and he lost three. And his last loss, the reason why, you know, the other 12 victories, let's be honest, they were against no real big names. They were pretty poor average fighters. He lost his rematch with Bernard Hopkins as well on points. And in Russia against Denis Lebanev, who's a, a guy I think many of us will probably know. The name I remember sort of watching a few times, and that was by a 10th fan knockout. He faced average opponents, as I said, winning all of his bouts before losing it to one of our very own, one of our Brits, Enzo Macanelli, who knocked him out with a brutal right hook to the side that he had and sent the 46-year-old by that point down face on the canvas in Moscow, Russia. And I tell you what, that is a lovely shot from Enzo. I remember seeing that. And I remember, you know, I, I believe Enzo would be man enough to turn around and say that. It was definitely not the James Jr. we had witnessed and we are discussing previously before this. But, yeah, it, it was... Uh, Bit of a bit of a again, we have this situation many times of fires just continuing way beyond their prime, and so Enzo Macanelli knocked him out in Russia. Yeah, it's crazy, crazy to see that. You know, Manjo Macanelli was a guy who was uh, a pretty decent cruiserweight in his own right. He had a good run as a world champion before losing to, to David Hay. He actually fought Dennis Lebedev as well, and he had some great fights, Enzo Macronelli. But as he rightly pointed out, 46-year-old Roy Johns Jr., way past his best at this point. No way was he anywhere near what he once was, and Macronelli got a good shot on him and ended the fight. So... On the 19th of August in 2015, Roy Jones Jr. actually went and met up with Vladimir Putin. And it was to ask for a Russian-American citizenship. So he wanted dual citizenship in Russia. He explained that he often visits Russia for business activity and a passport would avoid inconvenient rides. Now, Jones was granted that Russian citizenship on September the 12th. For this, he was banned from entering the Ukraine because of the criminals' continued dispute with Russia since March 2014. So, not to dive too deep into it, but obviously the strained relationships (laughs) between Russia and the Ukraine comes into that factor. So, Roy Jones Jr. doing a lot of business over there at this particular time. Now, we're moving to 2017, and on the 30th of December, Jones announced that he would return to the Bay Centre in Pensacola, Florida, to headline Island Fights 46 show on February the 8th, 2018. Now, Jones had previously headlined Island Fights, which is a show that actually doesn't just involve boxing, it involves MMA bouts, so it's a bit of a mixed show, really. So he decided he wants to use his name, probably to help sell more tickets on the night. Of course, that's probably what it will have been. And he actually spoke about this particular event, and he said, My last day at the Bay, it's my last one for the Bayfront. Civic Centre in Pensacola, Bayfront Arena, whatever you want to call it. So if you want to come to see my last day in Pensacola... Be there February the 8th, 
That's my last one. And it isn't. I mean, that's the one thing. You should have done it earlier. I think Pensacola would have been a good a good venue to have, to have finished his career. I, I, you know, you can't mock him for that. It's, they loved him there. And But for me, I mean, he should have called it a day way before that. So, I mean, he, as you say, he stated it would be his final fight. And he was true to his word. And, and Jones announced Scott. Sigmund, who was 30-11-1 with 16 KOs as his opponent for the 10-round bout. Jones ended his boxing career defeating Sigmund via a one-sided 10-round unanimous decision, winning the vacant World Boxing Union cruiserweight uh, title in the process. All three judges scored in his favour in 98-92. So Jones did win, and Roy Jones Jr. retired with 75 professional fights. Over 29 years, it's incredible, really. 66 wins, 47 coming inside the distance and only nine losses. And, I mean, we say only nine losses. You've got to really express that because, let's be honest, he should have called it a day way before he fought some of them other fellas when he, those, those losses at the end of his career, which we yeah. always say when we do this career profile, Sean. And he's still a great, there's no doubt about it. He just, he just went on another sort of 10 years longer than he should have. Kids, you know Floyd Mayweather. He's been the best pound for pound for a long, unbroken time, right? Mm-hmm. In boxing. And then he put distance between himself and everyone else. He's like this and everyone else is below him. Floyd was in his prime when Roy was in Roy's prime. For years and years and years, not a single person on earth ever even wondered, is Floyd as good as Roy? You understand how good Roy Jones was? It's like when Jordan was in his prime and Shaq was coming up and no one ever asked, is Shaq as good as Jordan? Then the day Jordan retires, Shaq puts that same distance between him and everyone else. That's who Jordan was. That's who Roy was. He put distance between him and Floyd, like Floyd puts more distance even than Floyd puts between him and everyone else. Roy was the best I'd ever seen in person with my own eyes. They couldn't touch him. With knockout power. just go, listen, power. just go look at old clips of Roy. I'm not talking about from 10 years ago. I'm talking about from 15 years ago. This is how good Roy was. Remember when Mike Tyson knocked out Michael Spinks? Yeah. Kids, this is the distant past. Everyone thought Mike Tyson, they wouldn't say it out loud, but he's going to be the greatest fighter ever. He's going to be better than Ali. He's going to be better than Sugar Ray Robinson. He's going to be the greatest ever. That's what people were thinking, and the old-timers wouldn't say it, but they, everyone was thinking it. If I told you on that night that there is an amateur junior middleweight who is never going to come close to really losing a fight, should want a gold medal, got ripped off, win titles at middleweight, super middleweight, jump up to he- light heavyweight, jump up to heavyweight, against John Ruiz. beat a top five heavyweight, and one day open two to one to beat Mike Tyson, you would say, that, that's not possible. You're describing the best fighter ever. That's how we perceived Roy Jones the night he beat John Ruiz. This guy may challenge Sugar Ray Robinson for the number one pound-for-pound spot of all time. Certainly did. He certainly did indeed. Former heavyweight champion George Foreman said about Roy Jones Jr. He hits like a heavyweight and moves like a lightweight. Now, the expert opinion of Boxing Magazine's editor, the late Burt Sugar, is provided on Jones's website. He possesses the fastest hands in boxing with lightning fast moves and explosive power in both hands. So let's put into context then Roy Jones Jr.'s career, the career that people remember him for, not the latter end of his career where, you know, he could have battered these guys with one hand tied behind his back in the mid to late 90s. <laughs> let's talk about the Roy Jones Jr. that has achieved history. Let's talk about what he did. He actually held multiple world championships in four weight classes, including titles at middleweight, super middleweight, light heavyweight, and heavyweight, and is the only boxer in history to start his professional career at junior middleweight and go on to win 
a world heavyweight title. Losing all that weight from heavyweight was one of the worst ones because I had to lose 25 pounds of muscle, so that'll always be probably the worst one. But good, so many good, man. God bless me so much that it's hard to say which one was my favorite. Um, beating James Turner because he was probably the best fighter in the world at the time was a favorite. He probably the best fighter I ever fought without without a question. Um, we were very fight against Griffin, the heavyweight fight. So many of them, I mean, Eric Harden, beating, beating his arm up, I mean, Richard Hall, all the show, showboating we did. It's just, there's so many memories, man, so many great memories that God blessed me with that it's hard to pick, pick out one and say that's my favorite because all of it was so beautiful. Even even down to the Jeff Lacey it was so fun and so beautiful to meet you. It's hard to pick out a real favorite. Wow, that is impressive stuff. And I think the only other person like that springs to mind is Sam Langford, but I think he fought at featherweight, I think, or lightweight, Sam Langford. Obviously, he never got the opportunities that Jones did because it was 100 years past, so obviously he didn't quite pick up those sort of those acclimates as what Jones Jr. did, but what a remarkable career. And, and Jones is considered by many to be one of the best boxers of all time, and especially at pound for pound, and becoming the first former middleweight champion to win a heavyweight champion in 106 years. I mean, that is incredible. What a magnificent achievement from Jones Jr. And, and on February 2018, Jones holds the record for the most wins in a unified light heavyweight title bout in boxing history at 12. And he, he clearly is an absolute legend. He certainly is an absolute legend. That's what we've got to remember him by. We've got to remember him by that. He's absolutely amazing boxer. Now, he's also the three-time winner of the Best Boxer ESPY Award, which is 1996, 2000 and 2003. And the Boxing Writers Association of America named him as the fighter of the decade for the 1990s. So that just kind of puts it into perspective of how his peers and the Associated Press thought of him as a fighter. People will talk about him going on for too long. Hell, we've talked about him going on for too long. And a lot of other people are in the general consensus of he's a fighter that probably could have achieved more bigger names on his record. If you look back through the years and look at the potential fights that could have happened, but then also look at the actual accolades he walked away with. There's not many fighters that will ever do that. And that's something that we've got to emphasise here. Whilst we might have not got to see the Roy Jones Jr. versus Nigel Benn or the Roy Jones Jr. Chris Eubank or Steve Collins or even Joe Calzaghe in his prime or even some of the other fights, even the crazy talk of him fighting Mike Tyson up at heavyweight in the early 2000s, a crazy thought to even think about given where Roy Jones Jr. started out. And then let's not forget at the very beginning of the episode all the shit he's had to endure over the years with the issues with his father, you know, losing really bad decision in Seoul in 1988. You know, there's, there's so many things there that you could easily sit there and say would have put somebody away from boxing and somebody that maybe wouldn't have gone on to achieve so much, but to overcome all that adversity, to go on to do what he's done, for me, it just makes him one of the great fighters of all time, one of the pound-for-pound pound best of all time, which is why we've really enjoyed doing the career profile of Roy Jones Jr. Yeah, absolutely. And he, he can pund it well as well. He can, he, can, he can talk down a fight. He can break it down expertly. I, I do like listening to Jones Jr. Most of the time, there are times that sometimes I think he's probably told to, to say what he says at times, I think. But other than that, when he really does, he, he listens to his analysis of a fight. And, you know, he, he can really, he does one. He, he, he can do it really well. And he's quite well-spoken as well, considering she's been through in his life and, 
you know, and he sort of, you would think he would be, I think at the sort of beginning, he was all boxing, he's probably a little bit articulate, he, he, he taught himself really, let's be honest, and, and he is very articulate, I mean, for, for a guy that's had so many fights in, in the amateurs and the pro game, and he's still got his senses about him, which is great to see, you know, that's what we like, and, and we like to see guys like, like James Jr. being spoken of as, as one of the top fighters, but obviously the, the big burden was that he just didn't get that massive opportunity for those huge fights and you just wonder, you know, in a different era you could be talking about him as one of the greatest ever. I mean, even Burt Sugar was at one point probably saying that, you know, although he did have the lightning hand, like the fast hand, explosive power, he still was saying he was struggling to put him in the top 100 and that is literally because of the fact that the opponents that were around at the time, which is harsh really considering what he did. I mean, that that, that a great achievement from what, 106 years record that, that old uh, Fitzgerald old, another one of our own although he sort of did come from Australia but you know he is one of our own so yeah I, I, I can't knock it I mean it's, it's a tough one I mean we'll, we'll obviously everybody are, uh, some people say it's the greatest ever I don't know I, don't, I wouldn't say that but it would have been interesting wouldn't it we would have to think about if you stick him in the ring with some of the great how he would have fared I mean it's a tough one uh, I really don't know it's difficult to assess but he's, he was so good he was head and shoulders above everybody else it's not his fault is it but an absolute great career profile when it's been fantastic looking through his, his history all the way back to the, the, the sort of the stuff of his father which I never knew about before we did this so it's, it's been great reading about and doing it yeah 100% I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed doing it Big shout out to Seamus Laverty again for picking this one for our latest Career Profiles episode. Thank you for for providing us with an absolutely fantastic fighter to do a career profile on. And I really hope you've enjoyed the episode and I really hope all the other listeners that have listened to this, you've really enjoyed this too. And if there's anything that you want to talk about regards to the Roy Jones Jr. Career Profile, you can tweet us at career underscore profiles on Twitter. And you can also find the Facebook page, btr boxing podcast go and find all the latest episodes from all the other career profiles podcasts that we do the legendary night series wants to watch and the main btr boxing podcast feed i hope you've really enjoyed this episode on the career profile of of one of the pound for pound best one of the greatest fighters in a lot of people's eyes this is the career profile of roy jones jr Podcast Network. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.